So throughout this uh, series on the servant songs, we've spent a fair amount of time talking about the identity of the servant. Uh, it should be fairly clear by now, if you've been here the last few weeks, that my own bias is to read the character as the servant as both representing Israel and as finding its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. My belief is that when these words were first prophesied, the prophet was not thinking of the future historical Messiah. So he wasn't thinking about Jesus, but rather of an ideal Israel, an Israel that only God could bring about, okay? As a Christian, though, I believe that God brought about that ideal Israel, not as a small chosen nation, but in the person of his son, for those who know Jesus and know Jesus' story, we can't help but see his likeness when we read the servant songs. Isaiah 49, verses 1 to 13, is a passage that's full of imagery that will bring up thoughts of our Savior and Lord when we listen carefully. Now, so rather than spend more time on the identity question, I'd like us to consider leaning into how these verses illuminate Jesus for us. There's just one problem in that regard, however, and that's verse 3, because in verse 3, the servant is clearly identified as Israel, and I just told you to think of him as Jesus, and it's kind of difficult to avoid. Is it Israel or is it Jesus? Um, there's a commentary on Isaiah that's really great uh, by John Oswald, and um, he's helpful uh, on this verse and quite creative. So according to Oswald, there are two slightly different ways to read verse three, and I'm gonna be technical here for a minute, and then we'll get to Jesus, and it'll be great. Um, but just to kind of try to clarify this. So verse three says this, you are my servant, uh, named uh, my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. That's what it says. So there's two ways to read it. The first way is you are my servant who is named Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But there's a second way you can read it. You could read it like this. You are my servant, my Israel, in whom I will be glorified. See the difference in the second one? In the second version, God is being emphatic as he addresses the Messiah, as he talks to the Messiah. He says to a specific person, I believe to Jesus, he says to Jesus, you are my servant. You are my Israel. Think for a moment. God says to the servant, you are my true Israel. The servant, or Jesus, ends up standing in the place of the true chosen people. There are such connections here for those who follow Jesus. For those who are in Christ, those who are members of his body, we share in this. The church, Christ's people, becomes the new Israel, and that's how it's talked about in the New Testament. Now, we do not fulfill what Christ fulfills, we are not the perfect servant any more than Israel is the perfect servant, except that we have united ourselves to Christ. And in Christ, we share in his sufferings and in his exaltation. Christ is the ideal Israel, and the church, which is in him, is the redeemed people of God, the new Israel. Now, we don't replace Israel of our own accord. We're not taking that over. But we stand in that place because of our union with the servant, our union with whom God has claimed as his true Israel, Jesus Christ. So that's just verse 3. But let's turn to this particular servant song, and then we'll see what we can learn about Jesus. This is how this servant song opens. Listen to me, O coastlands. Pay attention, you peoples from far away. 
This particular servant song is not addressed to the Jewish nation like some of the other ones are. It's addressed to people from far away. It's addressed to Gentiles. This is significant because while we naturally claim that the gospel is for everyone, we have no problem saying that as Christians, in practice, we don't always behave as though that's true. In practice, we often behave as though the gospel is for the people who are in the church and not necessarily for everyone. We might wish to think about who we consider far away from God. Who do we think are far away from God? And then we need to remember that these words are first and foremost for them. In some ways, this servant song is really not about the church or God's people. It's for people who don't yet know about God and don't yet know about Jesus. And that's important. The servant song continues then. It says, The Lord called me before I was born. While I was in my mother's womb, he named me. Notice as well that it's the servant who's the one who's speaking these words. So it's not God who's speaking. It's, um, it's the servant who's saying this. And the servant is saying this through the mouth of the prophet. And those words that the, the servant says go across the centuries. And we understand them through the lens of Christ. This is really quite remarkable. Now, it was not unusual in the ancient world for great leaders to have been spoken of as being chosen before they were even born. Like this says, the Lord called me before I was born. That's actually pretty normal in the ancient world. When there's a great king or a great ruler, they were talked about as, oh yes, they've been, they've been chosen before they were born to, to be that ruler. Um, not even necessarily through, uh, through heritage, but even sometimes just someone who was a good military conqueror after the fact would, would be talked about as though they were, they were chosen while they were still uh, in the womb. So this is kind of normal language for this time. Um, what is striking about this, though, is how readily the words apply to Jesus of Nazareth. Now, he was from a royal line. If you go back far enough, you can trace him to King David. But, essentially, Jesus at his birth was a nobody. Right? Like, and born into controversy. A young, unmarried girl as pregnant, and there's no room for them in which is ba what is basically kind of a backwater town by then, even though it's the city of David, Bethlehem. By then, it's sort of just off to the side from Jerusalem. Um, even later in Jesus' ministry, people start asking, does anything good come out of Nazareth? And that's where he ends up growing up, is in Nazareth. He's essentially a nobody. Yet think about the Christmas story. An angel told Mary, and an angel told Joseph, in two separate Gospels, this is recounted, in Luke and in Matthew, and the angel said, you're going to have a baby, and the angel is, gives Jesus his name. Tells both of them separately, in two separate occasions, you are to name your child Jesus. The Gospels point to Jesus' salvation mission being given even before his birth. And the way the Christmas story is told, Jesus is a nobody at the beginning. He's not a great ruler or king. So it's pretty striking that these words get fulfilled in him. 
Verse 2, it says, He made my mouth like a sharp sword in the hand. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me like a polished arrow in his quiver. He hid me away. We might think of Revelation chapter 19, verse 15, uh, which describes Jesus. And in the description, which is just this incredible uh, vision description, it says, coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike the nations. A sword, a sword coming out of someone's mouth is a pretty strange image. It actually means that the servant won't fight. Whoa, sorry about that. I gotta watch that. <laughs> it means that the servant won't fight with an actual sword, but that his weapon will be his word, the word that he speaks. And this actually gets applied to the church and for believers um, when, in Ephesians, where uh, Paul talks about the armor of God. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17 says, Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. The sword is the word. In John's gospel, not only is the word, is it the, about the word that Jesus speaks, it's not just Jesus' word that he speaks that has power, but Jesus is himself identified as the living word made flesh. He is now the sword himself. Then in this uh, verse, the servant is also identified as a polished arrow. The sword is his mouth or his spoken word, but he himself is an arrow. This points to the fact that God will use the servant in a fight. There's a fight going on. And while the expectations may have been a fight against earthly rulers or enemies or people who are occupying the Jewish nation, that might have been the expectation. In Jesus, we find that the fight is with far greater powers than that. And the scope of the salvation that Jesus is about is much larger than that. We find in this verse it says that the sword and the arrow are both hidden by God. They're hidden until the proper time. God's not firing arrows all over the place or flailing with some sword. He has them ready for the exact right time, for the opportune moment. Jesus is the one who appears at just the right time, almost as if from nowhere, as though he's been hidden all along. And he appears to strike the fatal blow against evil itself. Then we get that verse 3. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. We've already looked at the idea that God declares Jesus to be the ideal Israel. But the last part of this phrase is also important in whom I will be glorified. Everything about Jesus will bring glory to God the Father. And you notice throughout Jesus' ministry, he's always pointing beyond himself to God the Father. Always pointing to God the Father. Verse four of our text. But I said, so now the servant is, is speaking back. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my cause is with the Lord and my reward is with my God. Now, this speaks directly to the idea of God being glorified or honored by the servant. But these verses are, at first glance, surprisingly negative. If Jesus is the servant, why would he say this first part? I've labored in vain. There's been no point to it. And I've spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Why would Jesus say those kinds of things? It actually points to the apparent futility of Jesus' ministry in light of his death. The phrase actually 
gives us a picture of Christ on the cross when he cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This phrase shows us the humanity of Christ as he suffered and died. On Good Friday and Holy Saturday, when you look back on what Jesus did, it all, it all kind of seemed like it was all pointless. All hope seems lost at that point. God's glory is not on display on those days. Now, our season of Lent that we're in is like that as well. During Lent, we reflect on our own mortality. We are reminded of our sin and our need for repentance. And what we do is we connect with a Savior who entered our suffering. He's a Savior who suffered and died. And without the resurrection, it would all be vain. It would all be pointless. But rest assured, new life is coming. This is actually played out in our baptism as well, and I want to keep reminding us of our baptism during Lent. Christ is united to us in our baptism, in our, and he's united to us in our suffering. And as we are baptized into his body, we suffer and die with him. And this ought not be minimized. So we can ask questions sometimes like, do our lives really have any meaning? Or when we come to Jesus, we might say, well, is it really worth it to follow Jesus if it leads to the cross? Should we unite ourselves to him if it means suffering and death, if it means humiliation or ridicule, some things that Western Christians might be more interested in? Lots of us probably are not going to be killed for our faith, although there are Christians in the world that are. But is it worth it to unite ourselves to Jesus if it means possibly our friends kind of, oh, really? Jesus suffered greater humiliation than that. It can sometimes be freeing to think about you enter the the waters of baptism to die to an old way of life and then we're going to be raised up to a new life, but we can't rush that. We must acknowledge that the death is actually real, that Christ's death was actually real, that loss must happen. And in the time of loss, it may very well feel pointless. At the bottom of the baptismal waters, we drown. And for what? Has anything really changed? Did I accomplish anything in uniting to Christ? I think the Christian life can sometimes feel like that. Oh yeah, I remember when my faith seemed alive. But... I don't know, day to day, does it, is this working? Am I accomplishing anything? Maybe I should have just kept going at life on my own and not worry about Jesus. Now we could just answer these kinds of questions and these kinds of thoughts with the word resurrection, new life. But that's not entirely correct. Because I think we need to answer it with this instead. Trust in God for resurrection, for new life. What we do in baptism and uniting ourselves to Jesus in dying with him, we then trust in God for what's next. That's what Jesus did. He placed his life in God's hands. Notice the rest of the the verse in verse 3. So I've kind of just dwelt on the negative here for a bit, but it is Lent, so. 
The servant doesn't claim new life after his life is spent, does he? He just says, I've spent my strength for nothing and for vanity. But he doesn't claim new life for himself. He says, surely my cause is with the Lord and my reward with my God. What he does is he simply aligns himself to God and he hopes in him. And that's what Jesus did in his death. And that's what we need to do. Not figure out, how, well, how do I get that new life? And how do I, what are the 10 steps to having a better whatever it is, marriage or life or get more money or whatever it is. That's not what we're seeking after. It's trusting in God for that new life. Not on us, it's on God. And then we get verse five. And now the Lord says, who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the sight of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. This is all kind of an aside. It's actually quite hard to hear. Verse five is is a fast summary. What you need to hear is you need to hear the first part. And now the Lord says. Okay, so God's about to say something. And we'll get to what God is going to say in a moment, but first, let's build this up, Isaiah the prophet says. Get ready. Remember, life, work, ministry had felt futile. Everything had felt like defeat, but the servant is trusting in God. And now the Lord says, because something else is coming, now the Lord says, and which Lord is this? This is the Lord who formed me in the womb to be his servant. To be his servant so that this life and even death won't be futile. Who is this Lord? It's it's the Lord who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring uh, Jacob or Israel back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the sight of the Lord and the Lord and my God has become my strength. See, you have to hear these words being said. There's no other way with these words. They can't just be read. When you just read them, you don't get them. You have to hear them. They demand to be proclaimed by a great preacher, one better than me. They have to be put in the mouth of Jesus and then heard by our ears. There's a building to these words and the contrast that they they begin to, to build from the previous verse. We have to hear that. God is about to speak into what felt like futility, death, and insignificance. There is this servant, this Jesus, crucified, defeated, dead in a tomb, and gone, but God is about to speak. And that's what we need to hear. The God who formed Jesus in the womb to be his true servant. The God who formed Jesus to bring his people Israel back to him. We must hear Jesus say these words in the moment when the stone of the tomb is rolled away and he is risen. And now the Lord says. Here's what he says. Let's pause there for a moment before we hear it. Go back and think about the buildup of the previous section. Make sure that you have that built up. Everything seems lost. And then the stone is rolled away and the servant emerges. And then God says this. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the survivors of Israel. I will give you as a light to the nations that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. 
Was it all in vain? No. God's salvation obliterates any thought of Jesus' life being futile. He is a light so that God's salvation may reach the end of the earth. We tend to be so small in our thinking, right? We don't simply unite ourselves to Jesus so that we can feel better or so that we can overcome an old life for ourselves and get one that's maybe just a little bit better than it was before. We don't unite ourselves to Jesus to to make some kind of progress in our spiritual life. When we unite to Jesus, we we are uniting to a global salvation mission. When we unite to Jesus, we are one with the one. At the darkest moment when all seems lost, God speaks about how this has all been done according to his plan so that the entire world may know about his salvation. And then we get verse 7. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nations, the slave of rulers. Kings shall see and stand up, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Here the servant is identified as deeply despised and abhorred by the nations. Um, It's actually easy to be confused by the word nations sometimes because sometimes it can mean Gentiles, as in other nations that are not Israel, and sometimes it can simply mean people or the masses of people, or more simply, the mob. Because this is what happens to Jesus. He's despised by the mob. At the end of his life, there were very few followers who stood by his side. But in this verse is the promise of a radical reversal. The rejected one will be the one who is in the end honored even by the greatest of rulers. Then verse 8, thus says the Lord, the Lord is speaking a lot now. In a time of favor, I've answered you. On a day of salvation, I've helped you. I have kept you and given you as a covenant to the people. God continues then to speak to the servant of the promise of salvation, this global salvation that's being offered. The, The servant has been given as a covenant to the people, to all people. And a covenant is a, a promise that binds two or more parties to one another. Usually in the Old Testament, a covenant is between God and his people. Those are the two parties. And the primary covenant between God and Israel was essentially a, a promise that he would be their God and they would be his people and they would remain faithful to one another. The basic understanding of covenant, that basic understanding is why so often the relationship between God and his people is described in terms of a marriage. Even one of the images for the church is the bride of Christ. Because the fundamental promise or the fundamental idea behind the covenant between God and his people is faithfulness. We're going to be faithful to one another. Stand by one another. God says to the servant, I've given you as a covenant. But he doesn't say, I've given you to fulfill the covenant or I've given you to teach about a new covenant, or to get the people to renew their covenant. He says, I've given you as a covenant. Jesus is the covenant itself, much like the law was considered the substance of the old covenant. 
because the law described how to remain faithful in that covenant with God. Now, Jesus does more than that. He does more than describe how to do it. Jesus makes us as though we are faithful even when we are not faithful. Jesus makes us righteous, makes us right with God, keeps us in the covenant with God, even if we should probably have been tossed out. He is the covenant that binds us with God. He's the the glue of the relationship between us and God. To be in Christ is to be in faithful covenant relationship with God. When you're in Christ, you actually can't escape being in that relationship. Now, the rest of the servant song plays out the results of Jesus being given as the true servant. Listen to the freedom that is given in Christ to us. The imagery of new life and new possibility. Because sometimes we think God's promise is about a moment of salvation where we receive forgiveness for our sins and now we're in Christ and that's what God does. But notice in this passage how God's promise extends beyond simply saving us. His promise extends to what life is like after that happens, after we let him pull us up out of our darkness. So listen to these words again. I have kept you and given you as a covenant to the people, the Lord is saying to the servant, to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages, saying to the prisoners, that's us, come out to those who are in darkness, show yourselves. They shall feed along the ways. On all the bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst. Neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them down. For he who has pity on them will lead them and by springs of water will guide them. Do you hear the promise in that? It's not just, oh, I'll free the captives from prison, and then they can do whatever they want, because, you know, the world's a harsh place, but you'll figure it out. It's let's free the prisoners. Let's get them out of the darkness. And then I'm going to feed them, and I'm going to guide them. They're not going to hunger or thirst. Nothing's going to strike them down. God is going to guide us, and there'll be springs of water that'll flow up. And then God will also, as a throwaway here in the middle of this, change the entire landscape of the earth. And I'll turn all my mountains into a road, so you're not going to have to struggle to get over them anymore. And all my highways will be raised up. So you won't have to worry about the wild animals and you won't have to worry about the bandits who might be there because you'll be above all that. You'll be up there on the highway. Lo, these shall come from far away and lo, these from the north and from the west from the land of Syene. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his suffering ones. The significance of the end of this cannot be overstated. Did you hear how at the end of this song, there is the return in the final two verses to what was stated at the beginning? Who is this song for? It's for those who are far off. And listen to how they are now invited to come close. God, through his servant, will deliver comfort to his people, his compassion on those who suffer. Who is it who is far off, we need to ask? 
Who is it that needs words of hope and promise that God is compassionate and gracious? Sometimes we are the ones who are far off. But you may know someone, you may know some people who are far off. And you need invitation to come close. Perhaps you could even think about inviting them to hear about the hope and compassion that God offers in Jesus. And if you don't know how to have that conversation with them, then invite them to come here on Easter Sunday. It's a great time to invite people to come to church. Because for some reason, people still think, oh yeah, I guess I'll go to church on Easter. So reach out. Send a note, send an email. Phone somebody. When you're having coffee, ask them to come. Ask them to come. Because what better day to hear about the grace of God? Sometimes we get upset about the people who might only come at Christmas and Easter. We should rejoice. What better day to come? Easter Sunday. Absolutely. Come on Easter Sunday. Hear about the grace of God. We don't know what God's going to do through his word. His word is a powerful sword. So invite people to come and hear it. Now, you may not know who is truly far off or who is suffering, So even if you suspect, invite anyway. In Christ, the end of suffering and darkness is promised. Do you think there are people who need to hear the promise of the end of suffering and the end of darkness? His resurrection promises a final victory over every evil power that opposes God's rule of justice and love. Think about what this message may mean for someone who is stumbling and in darkness, unaware of the beautiful light of the servant Christ. Pay attention. People who are far away, pay attention, for there is good news. Amen.